Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is a pretty big one for me. We are talking to the writer, editor, Peabody Award winning person, storyteller, fantastic storyteller, David Wilde. Now, you're probably familiar with David. He appears on many other podcasts like Rock Solid and Adam Carolla. He's actually a very pivotal figure in my life and my appreciation of music and my desire at one point to have been a rock journalist. He was very pivotal in this, and we talk about this in here. He wrote and edited for Rolling Stone for many years. The last 20 years or so, he's sort of transitioned into writing basically for every award ceremony, musical award ceremony there is on television that you've seen. He's had a hand in it. And he's one of those excellent talking heads on basically every show you can think of, like those CNN shows that they do of the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and all that. He's always featured on those and he's always fantastic. Well, one of the main reasons why he's here is because uh, CBS next Tuesday, the 21st of April on CBS is let's go crazy. The Grammy salute to Prince. And he had a hand in bringing this to life. And so I've got my DVR set and I hope you will too, because I don't know about you. I miss Prince. And this is going to be like an all-star concert put on with great musicians. We talk about in here and thank goodness it was filmed before the quarantine came down. So the production value is going to be superior. Anyway, I hope you guys will check that out. I really just, it's rare that I get a chance to completely nerd out with people like David. And he was such a great sport. In fact, I think I may have even asked him some questions that make him uncomfortable. But I just got really nerdy and I, because I could. And uh, anyway, his stories are great. So we talk about a lot of the people that you guys know I love. David Bowie, Hall & Oates, Morrissey, Paul McCartney. There's tons of stories like that in here. LL Cool J. I will say, uh, this was recorded right after Adam Schlesinger died from Fountains of Wayne. And at the beginning of this conversation, we're just making small talk, not really intending it to be part of the conversation, part of the interview, but it was really good. And so I'm leaving it in. So at the end of the conversation, we talk about Adam again and his last interaction with Adam. And there might be some crossover there. So if you f- hear, feel like you're hearing a story for the second time, it's because the first time he was telling it, just the two of us talking, the second time it was meant for all of you, but both were effective. Also, when he recorded this, John Prine was still alive, although barely. And so that's also kind of a layer of sadness here. Anyway, I hope you guys will enjoy this. Some of you know I have a mild obsession with Rolling Stone. I think I kind of am to Rolling Stone magazine what Mark Marin is to Saturday Night Live. It's just this bone that we can't stop chewing on. So he was a very good sport and let me pick his brain. I might bring him on again to get even deeper on some of this stuff. Anyway, I hope you guys hear a lot of stories that you love. David is the best. And he called me from his home in L.A. It's rough. Today, the last two days are the first two where I'm starting to really kind of feel cabin fever, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I I feel your pain, and uh, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely. It's getting stranger and stranger, and actually, just like more and more people I know being impacted, it's you get it, 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 like Adam Schlesinger exists. Yeah. Like that was surreal because you know we yeah. just run into him like Valentine's Day. I don't even know how long. Really, I've lost all sense of time. Yeah, we went to a little club where um, the guy who sang. That thing you do, which Adam wrote, uh-huh. uh, was was playing like a little a little dive bar, and we were invited by mutual friends from the songwriting world, and we went because it was a super cheap uh, Valentine's Day, and uh, I saw him waved, you know, and like I, I just yeah, it's, it absolutely was surreal because I had not even heard he was 
no. you know, sick. So, it, and, you know, my lot, and then I think this last year at the Emmys, because I worked with him on the Emmys and a bunch of other shows, mm-hmm. I just remember at the after party, like, I lost and he won and he, like, waved at me with his <laughs> Emmy. <laughs> he, he, as he, he well deserved, because yeah. he, he wrote all that music for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which I didn't watch, but my older son watches and thinks it's, that stuff is just genius yeah yeah that's um it's not that adam was a little guy but it's the it's when the peripheral people who you who maybe you take for granted because you don't think of often enough those are for whatever reason those are the ones that really impact me like i'm not even a country fan but i think joe diffie dies and here's someone who was a vibrant country artist and one minute they're here and the next minute they're gone and did i uh, did i honor them enough in their lifetime was i did i now I'm sad that they're gone and they're gone forever. And three weeks ago, every life was fine. And yeah, it's no, so I, uh, difficult to swallow all of this. Yeah, no, it's funny because I will just say, like, social media wise, and in definitely in my work, I have always. If I, I'm not saying I do much good, but I try to always honor like the legends that might be forgotten. Like right. I and like people like Joe Diffie. I go to the Opry almost every time, you know, every weekend that I'm in Nashville. And you see, I think there was another a, 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 another legendary woman of country who died, like the same day before, two days mm-hmm. before, and another Opry member. And it's like you just can't believe what's no. going on. And, and no. obviously, these are the early days. Yeah, <laughs> it's. Uh, I feel like these pandemics don't really get serious until somebody you know is affected, and then affected, and then it becomes very real. And I still, yeah. my brother-in-law has it, but I don't think he's in any grave danger but when you're when the musicians or the people you care about and like i said maybe even the people especially you haven't thought about for a while and suddenly they're gone then it all becomes very real and then you're scared and we're yeah. all worried you know well i'll just say that the it really got real for me very early just because i had done a a benefit the, there's a great cancer breast cancer benefit called an unforgettable evening that they that I've worked on for many years, mm. and it's uh, Rita Wilson and Tom Hanks and Spielberg mm. and Kate Capshaw sort of have sort of st- part of starting it and mm. sort of the driving forces. And I was with Rita like the day before she went to Australia, oh, and so no. when they announced that she was sick and Tom, that that's when it started getting very yep, real for me. True. And like, and uh, yeah, my wife and I both got a cold pretty bad right around that time so who knows i don't know i mean fortunately that was it but it felt very real and it's it's it weirdly seems to be hitting the musical community like Mm -hmm. um i mean the fact that Mm -hmm. like adam wrote that thing you do that tom and rita were among Mm -hmm. early people oh my gosh it just it's and you know and the the nashville community john prine i yes uh we were supposed to be honoring john uh at a uh a Grammy PBS special in a few weeks, I guess it was. Yeah, in just a few weeks. And I was with him at the Grammys, and, have, you know, I've known him since uh, 91, I guess mm-hmm. it is. And he's one of my absolute favorite songwriters. So, yeah, this mm-hmm. is just, yeah. in addition to the bigger issues, the sort of, mm-hmm. yeah, it hits you close to home, and then it hits you on the global level. It just keeps hitting you one yeah, way or another. it does. Um, okay, so, well, first of all, let me 
this I've been wanting to you we've been talking about doing this for a while and I'll I'll be completely honest with you the reason why I haven't reached out to you is because I am so concerned that I'm going to become so sycophantish to your every story that you're going to get tired of me so that's why I have I'm always he's so nice did he really mean it because he doesn't know what he's in for I want to hear everything so I I was worried that you would think that I, I was just too much to bear in my curiosity no, no, no. of your life. I will tell you that <laughs> I've been home with my wife and my younger son back from college, and both of them are so tired of all my stories <laughs> that it will be fantastic to Good. tell any of them to anybody who might give a damn. Good. Well, that's me. That's me. Yes. Okay. Well, good. Well, we're going to... And by the way, I want to oh. say I am a day one fan of the show. Really? I have... Uh, I, and again, I don't even... I literally just... My memory... Is uh, and it's funny because we have, you know, Pat, uh, mm-hmm. Pat Francis, uh, rock solid in common, mm-hmm. and I think I came in pretty late, years late to his, but I think somehow I'm such a, I reveal too much of myself to say I probably <laughs> fairly regularly would, uh, you know, search Starbucks mm. <laughs> and not the coffee, the group <laughs> right. uh, online, and I think I found like. That was number one, right? Yeah, was it was. Really... Yeah, it was. Yeah, so I'm a day one, day one fan of uh, the. Thank you. I uh, I remember um, you saying on uh, one of Pat's episodes that you do a lot of walking and that you're always looking for music podcasts while you're walking, and um, exactly. I think now I messaged. More than ever. Yeah, well, no kidding. Yeah, and I think I messaged you or something. It was like I, you might like ours if if you like music podcasts, you might like ours, and I think you had already knew you already knew what it was. And uh, so anyway, this is this is kind of crazy for me. And I'm going to get into a, I'm going to tell you a story in a minute about how I became a diehard David Wilde fan. But for starters, since we yeah. always kick whenever we bring on the non-musicians, I always like them to pick some songs to sprinkle into the conversation that really matter to them. And you picked Prince's Pink Cashmere as the intro song of all well, the songs that yeah. Prince did. Why that one? Well, that one uh, just uh, the the moment I met Prince was right around that time he i have a credit which which is and really i i also picked it because i'm trying to plug the upcoming yeah. uh, prince grammy tribute let's go crazy on cbs april 21st end of promo <laughs> but um uh i met prince uh i went to cover actually the love sexy tour in paris mm. which sounds like the coolest thing on earth and it in fact was the coolest oh, thing on earth oh, to, to, I, I you know to fly to paris see his big arena show, and then I was summoned along with uh, Kurt Loder uh, to go. After his show, he had a private little reception, and I think my weird memory was in a park on an island. I don't know where in Paris Mm. there's a little park on an island, but it was on the water somewhere, and we were brought over to Prince, who isn't the chattiest of fellows Mm -hmm. uh, historically, and he was less chatty because Kurt walked over and stepped on his foot. So that was the awkward moment. But Prince did still bother to take a few seconds and say, I'm playing later if you'd like to go. Ooh. And it was like, that was like one thirty in the morning after a show. Yeah. And I think it was like 4 o'clock at a club uh, on the Champs-Élysées, off the Champs-Élysées in oh. Paris. And I actually went and found the set list and everything the other day. Uh, but there was a show with Mavis Staples, mm. uh, with Sheila E., Mm-hmm. And cut to, and there have been a million, you know, I, I fortunately, oh, after that he asked me to consult or just give, make my su- suggestions 
for his uh, hit, uh, his hits and mm-hmm. B sides mm-hmm. anthologies, mm-hmm. which has Pink Cashmere, which is like one of the new tracks that he put mm-hmm. on that, and one of the most beautiful songs ever. But then you flash to <clears throat> just like how your life or how my life has played out, where I've been so lucky to get to work in a different mm-hmm. variety of ways with a lot of my heroes. But with Prince, it came down to like a couple times writing things for him to say on TV with mm. him, writing, att- attempting to write a joke for him once. <laughs> then, uh, you know, I, I went with Ken Ehrlich, who was the executive producer of the Grammys for like 33 decades. And mm-hmm. when he opened the Grammys with Beyonce, uh, we had the creative meeting with him. We walked over to the rehearsal hall, which we drove over, and then mm-hmm. walked into this rehearsal hall, and I knew him a little as a journalist, and he was like, you know, friendly but slightly suspicious mm-hmm. of me as a former journalist. And we had this long meeting, and then he said, do you want a little private show? And he did literally like an hour of a concert oh just for Ken and I. He, put two, he had someone put two chairs out, oh. and we literally got a private print show, which wow. is still maybe the greatest thing I've ever seen. Does he and like twirl it, on his heel? Does he perform the same way he would in front of a large audience in, in a situation uh, like that? I think it was like rehearsal pace, but okay. it was great. I mean, yeah. he, he was an impeccable performer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he did the... It was, you know, working it out and sort of showing the moves for what he would end up doing with Beyonce, which is mm-hmm. what we were mm-hmm. talking about uh, that day. Mm-hmm. And then cut to just, you know, two days after the Grammys this year, we uh, I got to work with Sheila E. and Mavis. Well, Sheila E. was one of our musical directors. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who were... Unbelievable, you know, geniuses and all these other artists who I've known over the years to do the tribute, which uh, I, I think is really, really uh, a beautiful show. And Maya Rudolph hosted, and mm-hmm. I hope everyone will watch it. But yeah, I picked Pink Cashmere because it took me back to that sort of moment of meeting a genius. And that's like, I mm-hmm. that's what I think I love about my work is I meet a lot of geniuses for yeah. a non genius. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. He, when I think of Prince, first of all, I mean, I love him too. Prince to me, what what I think about with him is that he might be the most authentic, one of the most authentic artists ever because he was exactly what he wanted to be. You know, he was as true to himself and his, whatever it was, his, what he was into, his musical muse, his fashion sense, his sexuality, whatever it is, he wore it prouder than, you know, so much of rock music, especially is about facade and looking cool and being cool and acting a certain way. And you know that he was exactly that person 24 seven all the time, you know? No, absolutely. And I got to, you know, it's funny because I knew him the, to the extent that I got to know him and I'm lucky, I feel lucky about that. But I also just spent a lot of time over the last, you know, a uh, few months with mm-hmm. people like like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and Sheila E., who knew him a lot better, and the Revolution are on the show. And so, you know, you hear a lot about what Prince was like. And they all, you know, I think what you said is exactly right. And the thing that's more amazing to me about it is because we're talking about him, you're, and again, we've never met in person, but mm-hmm. I think, Pat, are you like 6'5"? I'm 6'8". You're yeah. six eight. Yeah. Okay. okay. So think about this. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm not five eight. I'm five six. You know, uh-huh. on a good day. Uh-huh. 
when I think about, and I remember the one time when my wife and I went to see Prince at Grand, Grand Slam, the club he had downtown in L.A. for a while, we were talking to him, and we towered over him, <laughs> like both of us. My wife is like 5'1". So think oh, about yeah. this guy having that. I guess he had to have that confidence mm-hmm. to become Prince, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I am in awe of him, and yeah. I... I, I, I'm still in awe of him. I, I think even more after, like, often when you do these sort of TV shows or projects, and mm-hmm. I'm sure it's, you know, if you write a book about someone, you eventually hit a point where you hit the wall and you go, okay, enough of this. Working on the Prince tribute, I could not listen enough oh, to him. Like, so the music is so deep. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, one thing that's sad is that, you know, after he sort of was the artist and then re- tried you know, sort of the, the the back half of his career, there was records that I didn't pay that much attention mm-hmm. to, I'm ashamed mm-hmm. to say. So the great thing was I really took the time to listen to it all. And mm-hmm. I, the guy, as you said, he just was so true to himself and, you know, so, like, truly confident. Like, yeah. when That's I it. watched that Rock and Hall of Fame performance and yeah. you see that guitar solo, uh-huh. I talked to the other guys on the stage, a few of the other guys, <laughs> and they were just like... They were just like you and I. They were Ugh. just, you know, everyone was a, a, a an accessory to his. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he was- that's it. Yeah. Um, okay, so just to remind everybody, the 21st of April, that's a, what is that, a Tuesday, I believe? Tuesday, yes. Tuesday Thank the you. 21st. Prince 9 p.m. CBS. Tribute. That's right. And this thing, thank God, was filmed before all this happened. So you're going to see full-fledged performances from all the people on the screen. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. It was, uh, there was no social distancing at all. (laughs) Not necessary. Yeah. I can't wait. Well, good. We're going to, we're going to get this out in time for, uh, to help promote it. Now I I want to tell you when I became a David Wilde fan, because I remember this moment so well. Hold on. I'm listening. I'm I'm on bated breath. (laughs) So I grow up, um, you know, I grew up in Salt Lake city, a white Mormon kid. And from a young age, I become quite obsessed with Rolling Stone magazine. And um, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this and getting ready to talk to you. I wondered why it held such a place in my in my life. And I think it's because to me, as a young kid from Mormonville, there was something so aspirational about it. That's the word I keep coming back to is aspirational. I saw what I wanted to become in the pages of Rolling Stone. I wanted to think about rock stars as being as important as they appeared in that magazine. I wanted to the conversation about music and rock stardom being as important and mattering as much as it does in that magazine. I wanted that. And my dad wouldn't let me have a subscription to Rolling Stone, but my mom would sneak me copies here and there. And I was looking up before we even talked. The first one I ever remember getting was actually from September 11th, 1986. And it was a Paul McCartney cover story. And I had to buy it, you know, secretively and never show it to my dad. And it was this thing. But anyway, as I got older, I, and I realized this too, Rolling Stone became, viewing Rolling Stone sort of becomes, I think, someone who grows up being very religious and you're taught a certain way and things become black and white. And then when you grow up and you start forming your own opinions and your own l- likes and dislikes, maybe you become a little more skeptical. And so I was kind of growing out of, I, you know, I really love 80s alternative British rock music, you know, the Smiths and ABC and OMD and those kinds of Depeche Mode. 
And Rolling Stone never paid those people attention. And that got to me. So anyway, cut to the early 2000s. You have your talk show on Bravo. And um, you uh, and I'm watching this thing. And I believe one of the episodes was Elvis Costello, if I remember right. Yes. Uh, never forget it. Yeah. Yes. And, then, and I was like, wow, this... Now, I know now that Elvis Costello and, more importantly, Blondie were featured very heavily in Rolling Stone. But for whatever reason, to me right then, they seemed too outside. They didn't seem cool enough for, for Rolling Stone. And I remember you saying on the, on the Blondie episode that Parallel Lines was one of your favorite albums. And really? I thought, yes. And I thought, finally, somebody, and again, this is my own perception, somebody at Rolling Stone is sticking up for the music that I think is important. And I don't feel like that happens enough. And so ever since then, whenever you're on anything and you're on a lot of stuff, I'm paying close attention to what you like because you are kind of a voice for me. You seem to like things that are more, you're less concerned about cool or whatever. You like things that are part, that are poppy and bouncy and fun and just great songwriting, whereas Rolling Stones seem too cool for that sometimes. And so I've always paid attention to David Wilde because I felt like I felt a kinship with you that, yes, you're speaking up for the people that I appreciate, too. Does that make sense? No, it's very, thank you. It's very nice to hear. I, I actually, it, I think it's a natural byproduct of I never could, there was no conceivable way I could be the cool one. Mm. And so I, I made a decision just to tell the truth. And like, it, I remember one of my first days at Rolling Stone, uh, I had been out of college just a couple of years at Esquire, and then Jan hired me away, and he was walking down the hall, and he went, does anybody like Neil Diamond? <laughs> and I, I, I literally grew up on Neil Diamond, was raised on my mom's 8-track tapes of Neil Diamond. He was our Jewish Elvis, because I'm not a Mormon, despite any <laughs> claims by the Mormon community. Right. And I raised my hand, and that was where I made, I cast my faith. I never wanted to be the cool one I wanted yeah. and it was fantastic for me because I had all these artists who were my heroes yeah. who were desperate for the attention because you know they weren't Lou Reed or they mm -hmm. and who I also happened to love and sure but yeah so I I always just I've made it a point and I don't really believe in guilty pleasures yeah I just believe in pleasures yeah I agree that was the moment I felt like you were speaking up for me and I, you were talking about the things that I wasn't getting enough of out of Rolling Stone. And so, and Rolling Stone is, I mean, I, that was, that I, you probably hear this a lot, David, you have the life that so many of us wish we had. I, I, I grew up wanting to be you. My whole dream in life was to have a, bi, you know, a byline in Rolling Stone. I remember going to see Almost Famous in the theater and feeling like my heart was going to explode out of my chest because I wanted this life so badly, but then it just doesn't, you know, doesn't work out for everybody, but it worked out for you. You're the I lucky was, one. I did literally have the experience of uh, running to a guy I went to uh, uh, went to a prep school in Connecticut called Loomis Chafee for a while, and a guy I, I ran to a guy from there. He went, "Hey, David, what are you doing? Working at Rolling Stone?" I went, "Yeah, yeah." I thought he meant that meant that he knew that I was, and he went, "I was joking," oh. and I said, "Why would you joke?" He goes, "Because he used to tell me you're going to work at Rolling Stone." So I literally did get my dream yeah. job, and I'm uh, I I had a few really lucky breaks that had nothing to do with me. Uh, but I've, you know, I have tried not to, I, I, I appreciate the fact that, and there's definitely moments all the time where I go, I cannot believe mm -hmm. what I'm getting to do, including mm -hmm. like the, you know, this show, the print show. I remember, you know, we just were sitting 
in the edit bay and I'm sitting with Jimmy Jam talking mm -hmm. about, you know, song mm -hmm. selections and for these packages that, you know, we worked on and he did the voiceover for. So, and I'm to get to have the conversation, creative conversation mm -hmm. with your heroes is the most amazing thing. Like I literally, the ultimate for me, like my uh, older son is named, his middle name Dylan because I'm mm -hmm. such a Dylan fanatic. And there was one point where I was asked to meet after 9-11 actually at a, uh, have a brainstorm session with Bob Dylan and we and I I'll never forget like that was a moment where I literally you know mm -hmm. just said to myself this is literally everything you ever wanted to do yeah, yeah. so I'm yeah I'm definitely lucky I I think there's people who've gotten richer and more famous uh I'm not even almost famous I'm not <laughs> almost I'm almost almost famous I've right. told, <laughs> told that to Cameron uh, uh but but I do I am I'm a, I am a lucky yeah, yeah, you are. Okay, let's go to your second pick. You know I'm a big Bowie fan, and you thankfully picked Jump They Say from the Black Tie White Noise album. When comes the shaking man The nation in his eyes Strike with blood and embrace tattoo Streaking cathedral spice Why did you pick this one? And then I want to hear every Bowie story you have. <laughs> okay. Well, Bowie was speaking about like uh, not being the cool one in in the history of art. I think David Bowie's the coolest guy who ever lived. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not just saying that image-wise he had a cool image. He was the coolest. Per he was maybe the most elegant, most charming, mm -hmm. funny, w wonderfully and. And then just when you thought it was almost getting a little boring how wonderful and witty and, and erudite he was, he'd be weird and it would be fantastic <laughs> because that's also a part of, like, you know, I said to him, I think after like the, getting to know him a little bit, I said, like, I can't believe you turn out to be like James Mason because I, <laughs> I expected, like, you know, a junkie astronaut or right. something, you know. And, but he would do every once in a while something nice and weird. Like, uh, I remember... This is a weird one, but like the day we met, I think I met him first at his publicist office. This was at the time of Tin Machine, so not the mm -hmm. commercial height. It was mm -hmm. sort of like in that era when he was trying to run away from the Let's Dance yep. success, and 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 tr I think it was sort of he was doing it in sort of fits, and you know it wasn't quite working mm -hmm. commercially. Mm -hmm. But like I'm one of the few remaining uh, Tin Machine fans. Mm -hmm. But I, remember, I think we met at his publicist office the first day, and I think I was presented with a peace pipe that oh. Tom Petty had by the same publicist, Mitch Schneider. I think like they, they presented me with this peace pipe, 
like an old Indian peace pipe no as way. a thank you for like if you love this cover story I wrote. And Bowie said, "Oh, I see. I have to get you something." And <laughs> laughed. And so when my article came out, he called me because there was like after the article came out, it was this amazing, you know, there were like ten years where he would call occasionally, and I would he would ask, and certainly he would call. Like I I wrote I think for years after that all his like. I do interviews with him for his bios when he put out a new record. So I would get to hear, which was the most fantastic thing with an artist you love. Like you'd get the record first and then get to talk to him first. And but at one point after the article, first the Rolling Stone article came out, he called me and goes, "I've sent you a gift. Be on the lookout for a bizarre package mm. from Thailand. I think it was Thai or Vietnam or Thailand." <laughs> and nothing ever came. And he kept following up. And he he. he basically eventually told me, I bought you a fetal pig in formaldehyde in glass <laughs> uh, as a thank you gift, and Customs has rejected it and is trying to pursue me for legal, like, I, I think it was some legal, you know, it either was a piece of performance art so complex, because he, like, he followed up through a series of things, and, uh -huh. uh, but I never got the fetal pig, and then <laughs> It, it, the crazy thing was when he died, I remember so vividly going, now I wish I had. Because for years I was always saying, like, I'm so glad this gift never arrived. It would have been a horrible, horrible thing to have. And then I was like, I don't have really anything That's from him. Right. And, and then, like, uh, and I remember the, the, day he, the, the day he died, I was picking up my younger son from, like, a field, an over, like a at the airport from a field trip, like a school trip, and he came out crying because he said, I know how upset you're, you, you are, uh -huh. uh, and it was really sweet of him, but I, I remember going, I don't have anything, yeah. you know, and I just, I just wanted to touch something that sort of just connected me because what happened was when he had his you know, heart episode, uh, he cut out like a lot of his contact mm. with the world mm -hmm. and sort of focused on his family, which I think is probably a further proof of what an amazing individual he was that, mm -hmm. you know, I respect that he didn't talk to me after that. Yeah. But I wished I'd had something. And then one day I was going through my CDs, which have never been put in order. Oh, boy. And I found this Christmas gift. It was like a CD with a song he had written for like the wedding, for it's like a sort of a wedding song, but he sent it out like a numbered, I think it was like yeah. 200 copies. I've heard of this. His, for the wedding, and I found it with a, with his sign to me, and it just, I, I still have it like in my living room. Very nice. And I, because I just, I, I, he was fantastic. I mean, yeah. I loved your episode with like, you know, uh, the people who played with him and yeah. known him. Robin but Clark, uh, Robin who sang with Simple Minds, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, that was great. Mm -hmm. He was, he was so delightful and kind and funny. He took me to, um, I remember just like, he took me to, there's a famous hot dog place in LA called Pink's Hot Dogs. He took me yeah. there. He wow. took me to a Thai restaurant where there were pictures of him and Jagger. Uh, I think it just closed down, uh, like every uh -huh. restaurant now closed yeah. down. Uh, but he was just fantastic. He was, couldn't have been cooler, couldn't yeah. have been better. Seems like it. Um, why jump? They say specifically. Why did you pick that one? Uh, I was like in it? the studio for oh. that record. I did an in the studio piece for Rolling Stone Whoa. on uh, Black Tie White Noise, and I always thought that song was undervalued. Mm -hmm. It was 
I think it was a hit in England. Mm-hmm. I and it's you know apparently inspired by his brother's death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just there's something about it that like when he died, that song was one I just listened to all the time because it was just it, just something about the, its sense of loss. I think yeah. it was. You know, it's just a song that I, cause I, I just thought it's a song that people, yeah. people maybe still don't know, but I just love. I agree. I agree. Good pick. I just today finished reading a Bowie book called Strange Fascination, and it was huge and dense, and I just finished it today. So I, all this Bowie stuff is fresh in my mind. Now, we have to talk about a friend of yours who's been on this show who is quite a unique individual, and that's the former Terrence Trent Darby. I am oh, dying. My. I'm dying to know how you are friends with Sananda Matreya. Well, I was friends with Terrence Trent Darby. I wouldn't uh, in his previous identity. When I moved to L.A. for Rolling Stone in 1991, he reached out to me, and I didn't have any friends. So mm-hmm. literally, it was that weird deal where I was like, you know, my family and my friends were all back in New York and New mm-hmm. Jersey. So. Oddly, Terrence Trent Darby was my movie buddy. We went. <laughs> no way! I, I, I can only stress how much, and you'll you know, no one ever confused us. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we went. We were such movie buddies and hung out so much that uh, we went to see Toys by Barry Levinson, yes! one of the least successful movies of its year. We saw it twice together. No, we're the o- <laughs> we may be the only two people who ever saw Toys twice. He was one of my my first date or my second date with my wife. Um, she was paired with him. I took him to a party, our friend Val's party, and he they were paired in a game called Celebrity, which I don't know if mm. it's a game that everyone knows, but it involves like people giving clues about what celebrity uh, <laughs> they're talking about. And, I, and, and, and one of them, I remember my 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 future wife then like second date. Terrence was trying to get her to say Bob Dylan, and she got he got her to Bob, and then said like 500 Dylan songs, and she finally said, "I've got it, Bob Seger." Oh, wow. that shows how little my wife cared about music when right. we met. Right. And at one point, someone else had Terrence Trent Darby as the answer to their. No clue. way! Uh, <laughs> but he was, and when he went to my wedding, I have very, I guess was he one of my groomsmen, and my, um, I remember my old. Jewish relatives from New Jersey were sure he was Millie or Vanilli, but they couldn't figure out which one. But Terrence, weird, like, I, I listened to the interview because, like, I have lost, we lost touch, like, there was, there was a period when he, I think when he had briefly was, he sort of, like, singing with in excess, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. Uh, before they started picking sort of imitators. Right. And around that time, he rented a house in Malibu, and he invited me just to hang out for like a long night, and that's we haven't really I don't, we haven't spoken mm-hmm. since then. And I we totally lost touch. But I will tell you, I watched like a in that he loved Prince, and weirdly, I think it was sort of like I think he might have been haunted by the desire to be pure. Like he, uh-huh. oh, well, the weirdest fact, one of the weird facts, is that in addition to being his movie buddy. I also maybe helped destroy his career accidentally, really? which was uh, I was in England when he hit, like writing another story, and I came back to Rolling Stone and said, "This guy is going to be huge." Uh, w- this is before he came out in America at all, 
and I convinced Dion to do a piece. So I said, I'm going to do like a two-page feature. Mm-hmm. I called to offer him a two-page feature, which is a big deal for an artist who isn't even out in America yet. Right. And he, in the way Terrence Santarvi only he could do this, he turned it down. He said, cover or nothing. Oh. And I think I said, fuck you. Oh. And then he, uh, he, it turned out when the record came out, we gave him a cover. Yeah. And we paid him, he said, as he always did back then, crazy things mm-hmm. that could hurt his career. His album's and better than Sgt. Pepper, if I remember those right. Those sort of, yes, yeah. those sort of wonderful things. Yeah. And then I think I put, I came up, I wrote the headlines as like the music editor at that point, and I made the headline, Terrence Trent Darby, a legend in his own mind. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember I was going to the beach that weekend with friends, and I think I called on into the designer, the head designer, and said, Put a question mark, you know, trying to make it slightly nicer <laughs> at the end of it. So I think it ran something like a legend in his own mind or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And despite that, he somehow forgave me. And he okay. was funny. He was funny, which I think he, I don't know if that sense of humor quite came across. No. And maybe he's, he's changed, you know, like his yeah. name. But I loved him. He was funny and great. And, mm. uh, uh, oh, but I also just, it was interesting to watch. I watched him like, reject money like i think at one really? point his, his at one point his manager michael Littman, who also managed uh george michael was like called me as his like friend he goes you have to tell him <laughs> someone at that point of columbia records said they'll give him a million dollars each for two new songs for a greatest hits record as long as they sound like anything like anything he's ever done <laughs> and he and he wouldn't do it like he literally was like, I was like hanging out with him when he was making that record, Symphony or Damn. Uh-huh. And then was, the, was or was it then the next one had Supermodel Sandwich. Yeah. But he would literally do anything except what anybody wanted. Ugh. And, you know, there were so many things that should have happened with his career. Yeah. Like, uh, when, I, when we were hanging out, I remember a friend of mine was trying to get a feature film Paramount, I think, was interested in doing the Sam Cooke story, mm. and he would have been fantastic because he was just such a pure talent and mm-hmm. so charismatic, so handsome. He he had it all, but I think he had so much of it all that he couldn't figure out which kind of started. Maybe, maybe. It's funny. There have been a couple of times when I've reached out to, we'll call them uh, difficult artists, people who have that kind of reputation. He's one, and Michelle Schacht is another. And I oh, think yeah. I'm going to be the one. I want to go in and tell these people definit- their definitive story. Every- there's rumors and there's speculation out there. I want to go in and I want to give them their the best opportunity to be seen in their best light. And so that all that kind of rumors can go away. We can really get to know who these people are. And in both cases, those people prove to be as difficult as their reputations say they are. And I wondered when you knew him, did he was he as exhausting and paranoid to, to hang out with as he seemed to be to talk with me for that hour because it was it wore me out it was oh, no, impossible not at to all break that through. was you know I think in fact he had the terrible he made he's one of those guys who's so talented and smart but so smart they outsmart themselves yeah so I think it was like he was trying that was not the same guy I hung out with at the movies no he was funny he was mm. loose he was I mean, he just was like that. No, I think that's where an artist tries, gets inside their own head yeah. and becomes their own worst enemy. 
in a, in a certain way. I mean, listen, he may have, you know, it's like a lot of the people who hit, reach the Prince level, the Michael Jackson level, mm-hmm. they don't survive it. You yeah. know, it, yeah. it, it, it is like that to me. I've always thought of it like, you know, uh, Ringo Starr, who I know once said, like, he always tells me, I, see, I work with him a lot, and he always says, we were lucky. We had four of us. But, like, mm-hmm. the solo artists who reach a stratospheric, even if you only have one album of that, yeah. it seems like you can somehow never quite come back into, you know, into orbit. Yeah. It's true. It's so true. Okay. One, th- I want to, you know, you brought this up when we were messaging. You know that I'm a huge Holland Oates fan, and I want to know any and all stories that you have about those two. I assume your paths have crossed probably more than once. Oh, Oh, a lot. Uh, I, in fact, uh, I once recently, a couple. I mean, within a few years, I had the experience of I was in Nashville, and John Oates invited me to a book signing for that you know book he did at a little. And then mm-hmm. the next day, I flew back, or that night, I flew back to LA and forgot that I was seeing him in an arena. So I saw him play a like you know bookstore for fifty people, and mm-hmm. then with Daryl, you know. Uh, the forum the next day with mm. Tears for Fears. But, uh, yeah, I, 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 they were my first concert as a teenager. I am a lifelong fan. Uh, I wrote, you know, I, I've done so much with them. They're fascinating uh, because they're two of the most different people you could ever <laughs> imagine. I know you, you had John on, and John right. is the nicest guy in the world. And Daryl is one of the more interesting guys in the world. And it's funny because you, you have, you know, we've been going back and forth. I know you're interested in, like, the question of why do groups not stay together? Why right. do groups end up hating each other? Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, it's like, it's for the same reason that, like, why you probably don't always hang out with your elementary school friends. Yeah. You know, people grow up and change. But, like, Hall & Oates, even though they had that sort of, at their peak, they took a little break from one another. But really, that's the only break they ever totally took. Mm-hmm. But I think for the most part, the answer is people have to find a separate piece if they're mm-hmm. going to stay together. That, you know, I think the, like, they are very different humans. Mm-hmm. Like, John is low maintenance, Daryl's higher maintenance. Mm-hmm. But there is, you know, I, I'm a total fan of both of them. I like them both tremendously uh i still miss t-bone who was like a part of the glue of that group like t-bone was one of the coolest guys if you you would have done the greatest hustle episode of all time with t-bone because his like weird life like i think about him all the time i was doing some i'm trying to remember what i was talking i was doing some hip-hop related project Mm -hmm. and just thinking about no one really quite realizes like t-bone played the bass on the breaks by Curtis Blow. Oh, no way. I didn't know uh, that. I'm pretty sure that's what he told me, oh. and I don't think he was a liar, so right. whether or not he was credited, like T-Bone was the greatest musician, and yeah. he, you know, and, and also like the greatest appreciator of Hall & Oates. Mm-hmm. He, he, you know, I think one time we were just talking about Daryl, and he goes like, he is literally the greatest white singer of all time. Yeah, yeah. And he's so great that the great black singers appreciate how great he is. Yep. Yeah, it's true. Um, he's like the man, and uh, it's interesting because like, he can be a little bristly. Like, I remember being at some function, 
because I write a lot of these award events and things, and I was at some, I don't think it was like a BMI event, and Babyface gave him an award. Mm. And he used the phrase blue eye soul. Yeah, Daryl hates that. And Daryl went off on yeah. baby face. <laughs> I thought, yes. wow. Like, yeah. and, again, I, and I I always appreciated that because, I mean, like, Daryl and John's soul credentials are deep. Like, mm-hmm. I did a, we honored Tom Tom Bell, who, you know, mm-hmm. part of the incredible Philadelphia sort of sound a couple of years ago at a Grammy event. And, like, I so wanted them to do it. And they, were booked for a show, but like, I got to talk to Tom Bell about, like Daryl and John, especially. I think Daryl was like this white kid, who literally was hanging around Gamble and Huff and mm. Tom Bell, like apprenticing. So it's like mm-hmm. when he was offended by that, I think it was coming from a good place. But yeah, he's uh, he's a fascinating character, mm-hmm. and I think during uh, you know this weird quarantine phase, I just read that uh, AXS I think is running Daryl's house. Yeah. Uh, if, so yeah. I recommend that show is fantastic. I have nothing to do with that one, but uh, yeah. I always yeah, love it. Yeah, it's good. I remember uh, when T-Bone died, I was, I'd was i been watching the Live from Daryl's House from when it was a web series on his website, you know, 10 years ago or whatever it was. And um, I would, you know, you'd get an email at the beginning of the month saying the new episode's out. And I got to where I really felt like I knew T-Bone. And so when he died, it was a real shock to me because he had gone from, like most musicians, a guy who is on, plays on an album you like to someone you really feel like you're forming a relationship with because you, I, anyway, was watching them so astutely every month on this web series they were on. And he just seemed like the nicest guy. And you're right, the perfect levelator between the two. You know, he's the guy, oh, no. of, he's the bridge. Oh, no, and I remember, it's like there's certain guys... And it's funny, it's like one of my closest friends, another groomsman at my wedding who's long gone, and I think about him constantly, is Howie Epstein, who was in mm-hmm. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Mm-hmm. And there's certain guys who are just pure musical. And they, another bass player there, mm-hmm. uh, Steve Jordan, the drummer, mm-hmm. is another one, a friend of mine who, like, they come into town and they just want to go to dinner and talk music. Like, mm-hmm. for years, my wife, like, I'm not a phone person other than uh, for a podcast. I don't right. sit, but like, there was like 15 years of my life or 10 years of my life where Howie Epstein would call every night from where even when after a concert yeah. <laughs> with Tom and he would just call and we literally never, it wasn't like we were talking our innermost feelings. We talked mm-hmm. music for mm-hmm. like an hour. My wife was like, never understood it. <laughs> and uh, there's just people who like Steve Jordan's the same way. Like we took a, we met for breakfast for some project and then, walk through Central Park, talking about one Stone song Ugh. that I'm obsessed with, that he had a writing credit on. And, like, I, that's like that, that's as much fun as I can have, is walking through Central Park with a Steve Jordan talking about mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. your Like, mm-hmm. uh, But, yeah, those, that's like the... What's great is when you get a musician who likes to talk about other people's music. Like, yeah. uh, Elvis Costello was that way. After I interviewed him, there was, like, he would call and go... Let's talk NRBQ. <laughs> you know, let's talk Love and Spoonful. Like just random yeah. things. And it was great. Yeah. Okay. I want to throw out a couple of names that I had mentioned. I, I think one of the things, too, that um, I was hesitating in bringing you on is I thought, if I'm going to have David Wilde here, I need to have like a, a great topic. We need to, I need to pick something very special because if I just sit at his feet and listen to his stories, he's going to think I'm a loser. And no, um, no. so I know. I've, I know that now. But for the last couple of years, I've been keeping a list on my phone of bands that I wanted to throw out at you to hear a story about. 
And um, it's a pleasure. Yes. And so there are a couple of names that I'm just kind of curious about if you know anything about them. And uh, I'm not looking for gossip or dirt or anything, but I'm curious what you know about them. If there's no story there, there's no story. But one guy that came to mind is I wondered, this is an odd one, but do you know Richard Carpenter at all? And the reason I say that is because I feel like the Carpenters now are sort of, I don't know if a resurgence is the right word, but I feel like they're more appreciated now than they were for many decades because they were viewed as being kind of too soft rock or too wimpy or whatever. And Karen dies and Richard supposedly is the one who's arranging all of those songs. But then we don't hear about him very much anymore. And I wondered, where I, did he go? What is yeah, he doing? I'm, uh, I am sad to say that just because of when I came moved out to L.A. in 1991. So Richard, I think, made one solo record called like Time or something. I never got to work with him. I think mm. I met him once and shook his hand. But I did get to work with Phil Ramone, who was on the Grammy television committee. And I've been working on the Grammys all these years. And there was one time when I, I just... I think I drove him crazy. He was. I think he didn't mind too much, but like there were certain artists I was obsessed with. His production on the Nylon Curtain by mm-hmm. Billy Joel, which I think mm-hmm. is kind of an underrated masterpiece. Mm-hmm. I talked about the Karen Carpenter record he was making that sort of didn't come out until she was gone. Because mm-hmm. uh, to me, Karen Carpenter and th- those records, I'm a huge fan of them. Like as a kid, that was I was raised on eight track tapes of. Neil Diamond and the Carpenters and my mom's, those were my carpool A-track caves. So I never did get to meet him. But now that you've said it, I'm going to find some excuse to uh, to get to know him. Yeah. Yeah, I just, uh, I've, I've tried to find him to come on here. He just seems so incognito. And usually someone like that is that way on purpose. They want to be left alone, I've found. And so I'm just really curious, like, where did he go? Why? If he had this successful music career, why did it just sort of vanish? Why didn't he continue to arrange something somewhere well, for someone? Well, it's an interesting point because I think it's a little bit like John Oates in that when you happen to be, when you're a really talented person, both of them, you know, huge talents, mm-hmm. but when you happen to be the person who you're, the other person in your little duo mm-hmm. is the most talented singer on earth. Like Karen is one of, in, I, I think I've said, I've tweeted or whatever, mm-hmm. maybe the greatest white female singer. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I think I still put Gladys Knight and Aretha cup, you know, maybe above her for me, but like, you know, and she's up there to me. It's like Linda Ronstadt, Carrie Underwood. Mm-hmm. There's like perfect singers, but like even Richard made a solo record that I remember, and I think he got Dusty Springfield, who was amazing, mm-hmm. to sing on a song. But like, there's just no replacing yeah. Aaron Carpenter. Just like there'd be no replacing Daryl Hall. Yeah. Uh, but I tell you, when you mentioned about I, I thought because you had mentioned like how much you love the Smiths, that you're going to ask me about Morrissey. I so was planning to. Can I tell you eventually. a Morrissey story? Yes, please. That was I was saving that for the next segment. But yeah, do oh, it. Okay. No, oh, do I'll, it now. Let's go your pace. Well, no, do it now because your next, well, your next pick is The Clash. And so I thought, well, that, well, here, let's talk about The Clash because that was going to introduce my British 80s alternative segment of our conversation. Why did you pick London Calling? Well, I mean, I can imagine because it's iconic, but why, why in particular? London Calling through the Yeah. 
is that like because I'm in a lot of these um, you know the Tom Hanks Playtone did the 60s the mm-hmm. 70s the 80s you're always the so 90s. good on those by the way oh no thank, thank you but I, I, love I also those, consult the on the music one so mm-hmm. I'm very I love them I absolutely I think the genius of what uh, Playtone and Herzog and company who are the like producers what they did was they is they explained it to me which people still sort of watch it and love it and don't necessarily get is it's really a show about not just history, but how it was through the prism of television. So mm-hmm. what they did, which I've never seen anyone do better, was like they would take a topic like the British invasion and then find footage. As, like I, I'm in a lot of these shows or I've produced a lot of these shows, but they would find a different angle literally on history so that mm-hmm. you're seeing things you haven't seen, which like things that you've seen in a million e-Hollywood true stories yeah. or... A&E, you know, uh, those sort of things, mm-hmm. they really found a fresh way in, and, and I love being on them. That's, when, I'm walk, when I walk around, that's what people mm-hmm. identify with. You. Okay. Hey, 60s guy. <laughs> and when, the, when that happened, I was like, you got to get to the 70s, because I'm not 60s. Like, I actually don't remember the Beatles on Sullivan. I right. just, I'm talking about that a lot on TV, but I truly, like, I'm the one who, when I interviewed Paul McCartney and that's when Linda McCartney ordered me to marry my wife. Who nice. was my, after my first date. But he, I was arguing, I was like, could you play less Beatles and do more <laughs> Band on the Run? And he was like, what? And I'm like, I go, like, I really prefer Band on the Run to Sgt. Pepper. And he was like, no one's ever said that to me. I was like, I, got, I just got to be honest, like more, yeah. my, just because it's again, where you come in yeah. to things. Yeah. Um, oh, but the reason I picked The Clash is, Really, that just takes me back to being in high school mm-hmm. and the music that blew my mind. Like, I had already discovered Blood on the Tracks, Bob Dylan. I already loved Bruce Springsteen. But it was literally like London Calling, where I, that was like my, as close as I ever came, because I'm not the cool one to the mm-hmm. punk moment. Mm-hmm. And I just loved that. And then cut to however many years later, when I started working on the Grammys, the first, my first, one of, one of my first moments in TV where I got to have an input was I was there when Joe Strummer, uh, this is like my second or third year on the Grammys, first or second, uh, and uh, when he died, I came and said, I think we have to do something for Joe Strummer, and, mm-hmm. and we discussed it, and I, they said, what song would we do? I said, London Calling, mm-hmm. and they said, who would you have in it? And I literally, this is, if you want to know who, I am musically and where mm-hmm. I come from. I literally said, okay, Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> Elvis Costello, because that is my childhood. Yeah. And then we, uh, we got, you know, a little Steven who mm-hmm. came with Bruce mm-hmm. and was perfect. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then I got to, you know, work on a rhythm section, and Elvis suggested, you know, well, we got to get, uh, we got to get Pete, and mm-hmm. he'd be perfect for this. And then I'm, I think I had to find Dave Grohl, who mm-hmm. is the greatest and the mm-hmm. coolest. And then I think uh, Tony, I think I just sort of said, maybe Tony from uh, No Doubt could do it. And I remember after that London Calling performance on the Grammys, which was the first ever of our sort of in-memoriam right. performances, now it's an annual tradition. But Tony, like, hugged me and cried. Because <laughs> you just gave me the greatest gift I believe it. you could ever. And I, I think I tweeted with him, like, couple of years ago and he said i'm still thankful (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but that was like the moment where i learned like that was where i sort of became more of a writer producer and got to realize if you can keep your inner Mm -hmm. fan and then find a way to bring that on to tv those are my favorite that's that's one of my favorite moments of all time but also i learned a lot about the psychology of real stars because in dress rehearsal where that was like in Madison Square Garden, and we were only, we've only done the Grammys. I've done it 20 years. We only did it twice in that time in New York, mm. and that was the first time. And I never, I'll never forget watching rehearsal in Madison Square Garden. And I'm watching Bruce, and Bruce had another was on the show also doing The Rising, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking, oh, he's laying back during this performance, <laughs> sort of letting Elvis steal it. Mm. And like as an Elvis Costello fanatic, I was like this is so cool. Bruce is just letting Elvis have this moment. And then when the cameras went on and it was real, uh-huh. Bruce just like revved it up. Really? Like, <laughs> like it's like he put on the full Bruce and yeah. just like, and it was like, it was on and yeah. it was great. And he's not know, being upstaged by anybody. Yeah, exactly. I said, he's yeah. not going to be upstaged by anybody. No, yeah. no, that's not, you don't get to be the boss by being upstaged. That's right. Okay. Speaking, I, uh, I'll, I'll get to Morrissey in one more second. I thank God I saw Joe and the Mescaleros about six months before he died. And, oh my um, God, how was the show? It was great. It was at the Fillmore in San Francisco. In San Francisco, I was living in the Bay Area at the time, and I'm so glad I went. And uh, I also saw him once. I lived in England briefly in 1991, and I saw him fronting the Pogues, which was oh. one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. I love the Pogues, and this was one of the times when Shane McGowan had just been kicked out of the band like a couple of days before and they brought in joe to fill in for him and joe singing pogue songs in that ramped up irish style was just the greatest tell me a morrissey story well uh i was a student in england uh when i was like i took a semester actually my college girlfriend took a semester uh or a year at oxford and i she was too cute for me not to go mm. over there and try to protect my relationship. <laughs> right. So I went to London and uh, just went to a lot of concerts. But I happened, to, that was the year that this charming man came out mm. and I was, uh, I was there, like I did, I traveled around and saw Elvis every date on the British Punch the Clock tour. Mm. Uh, but I, I also just felt totally in love with the Smiths. Uh, and never really got to know them before they split up because it was those were like my college years and right but uh but years later i had a lunch with johnny marr and uh at a place called aquavit this like elegant restaurant and he was the like he could not have been more charming mm, i believe it more like open great and then you meet morrissey mm. <laughs> and morrissey uh, i met him in the weirdest way 
uh, which this seems fitting, but uh, I was asked to interview, to basically teach him and oversee him interviewing Joni Mitchell, oh. who is another fascinating, complex genius, and of whom he, you know, Morrissey was a big fan of Joni Mitchell, but Morrissey being Morrissey, it was like one of these things where like we met and we prepared like some, I, I just gave him some, we discussed questions, but everything we suggested, he then, being Morrissey, tried to find a way to mm. provoke mm-hmm. Joni, who he loved. Mm. <laughs> like he, He's so bright, but I think he has a, a, a sort of like impish to uh, nasty side. Something, yeah. you know, something that turns both, that has both light and dark, like his yeah. music. You know, the music is so, it's like charming and then it takes a turn. I think mm-hmm. it's like there's a certain manic depressive quality to some of his work, but he just sort of sabotaged like the interview a little bit. And like, I remember him saying like, uh, like he went on a long, like we went to this house and it was, I think it was recorded. There might be like an interview disc of it somewhere that Warner Brothers put out or something too. But like, I remember him just like doing things like bringing up, uh, like I think giving her a hard time about having ever had a steak. I remember mm. him bringing mm. up Buffy St. Marie a lot. Like mm. the one thing Joni Mitchell did not like was when you only compared her to other women in music. Right, you I know, could see like, that. Yeah. yeah, Joni as Joni's an amazing woman, amazing talent, great artist, but she definitely hated the like. Uh, you're you're really a good woman in rock. You know that was mm-hmm. not the thing to say to her. Uh. But he managed to get her pissed off even more by. Like saying, you know who I think is really great? Buffy St. Marie. And she was like, yeah, I don't really know her. You know, it's like, it was sort of a lesson in, in in retrospect, I like it, because I saw, oh, this is why the Smiths broke up. Yeah. Because this guy (laughs) is impossible. And, you know, I feel the same way. I go see him. I still have gone to see him many times solo. I love his, a lot of his music, but Mm -hmm. he'll find a way to make half the shows you see miserable because... You know, by, I'm not going to play anything you like, or I'm going yep. to, you know, give a speech that will offend almost everybody. Mm-hmm. So true. So true. What? Okay, I'm going to ask you a pointed question. What is Rolling Stone's issue with 80s British alternative music? Why does it? Why does it take so long for bands like Depeche Mode or New Order or The Smiths or any of these classics, the Specials, whatever? Why do they get marginalized? All the time by Rolling Stone. Well, I will say that my I came to Rolling Stone in '86, and I would say the overwhelming reason for a lot of things is, you know, in terms of who got the maximum coverage, it Jan had a. And if you read, there's books on Jan. I read Jan the, a, a yeah, I read the one character. from a couple years ago. Yeah, Joe. Jan, what's it called? Um, what's the name of it? Anyway, the big one that just came out a couple of years ago. Oh, Sticky Fingers. That's it, yes. Yes, that was uh, great. I, I did not read it out of, because the guy gave me my life, my dream dream gig mm-hmm. and changed my life, and I didn't mm-hmm. read it until my son said, you got to read this. So yeah. I did read it, and it was, I have to say, I learned a lot about someone who, you know, it, who I worked with for m- most of my life. But there's, listen, there's great things about Jan, like the fact that he gave me my life. One thing that is true, I think, that comes out in that book is his tendency was to, the artists that he cared about were 
the core of that magazine. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's why, like, you two who come from, you know, mm-hmm. the same era as some of those artists mm-hmm. in a way, you know, mm-hmm. they have been covered straight down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, you know, to become one of those artists, you had to enter the Pantheon. And yeah. that was, you know, Mick and Keith and, you know, McCartney and Lennon mm-hmm. and, you know, those people never left a vacancy. And, you know, yeah. so there were fewer and fewer spots. And I think, you know, I would say I've, I haven't really thought that much about some of the artists you're talking about as mm-hmm. much as with hip hop and yeah, with black music. Too. I think it was it wasn't uh, exclusive, but I in retrospect, I, that bothers me uh, more. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, yeah, that's yeah, my, that's my okay. feeling. That's my feeling, too. And um, I, as, this is why I was kind of comparing Rolling Stone to growing up with religion for me anyway, because you grow up thinking that something, something is telling you what to think and what to believe. And then eventually you start growing your own conscience and having your own taste. And you start thinking, well, I don't know if I exactly, if I necessarily agree with that, you know, and then you find yourself kind of kicking against this thing. You can't quite leave it alone because it's a huge part of you, but you also are sort of formulating your own identity away from it as well. And that's something that, has gone on consistently in my life. And the older I get, the more I kind of fall back to those type of bands. It just has always bothered me. And especially now that, thankfully, the Hall of Fame is becoming, it seems to be anyway, more of a democratic process. People like Depeche Mode or Kiss or Rush or Hall & Oates or these bands that were marginalized but also very popular are finally getting in there. Maybe we're overcoming that Rolling Stone bias, but you know this better than anyone for... 40 years they set the standard of how you've thought of a band if they were good yeah, or bad it, or popular or not they told you so i guess the interesting thing is like i now because i a lot more of my life in the last 20 years 15 years has been you know like the grammys and some of yeah. the award shows and i i have the same feeling i have about that like i love mm. doing these shows and i love honoring music and showcasing music and working with artists i've never given a damn what a magazine says about a yeah. record in terms of, it's never impacted what I think of it in the same way that if something winning or losing an award doesn't change I still like what I like and mm-hmm. I I feel like I'm consistent to a fault you know yeah. <laughs> like yeah. uh, I still like Neil Diamond last you know the two weeks ago or two and a half weeks ago we honored him at a, a, a benefit and he sang and it still I still was moved mm-hmm. so yeah. I like what I like I don't care what what's hip or what anyone yeah. else does yeah, good. Okay, speaking of uh, speaking of hip hop and R and B, which you are so right, that didn't get enough credit in there either. Your fourth choice is going to be "Mama Said Knock You Out" from LL Cool J. Tell us about that. I'm guessing with the Grammy connection, you know LL pretty well.
Oh yeah, LL is one of my absolute favorite people I've ever worked with, and we we you know I uh, rap hit when I was in college, and I think I might have written, and I if I I, have, I don't keep anything or have I lose everything, mm-hmm. but my, one of my uh, I, I must have written one of the first college papers about the poetry of rap, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, it, I think it quoted Curtis uh, Blow or something, um, but. Uh, then I find myself, and I've always loved LL because mm-hmm. it's funny because there's a generation or so probably who thinks of him as a guy on a CBS drama. Right. But I, like, he was the first, and I was growing up around New York and in New York, and he was the first, like, rap superstar. He was, like, mm-hmm. the first, like, sex symbol mm-hmm. of, of, of hip-hop. So then, cut to, I got to know him a little bit over the years, and then he becomes the Grammy host. And... Mm-hmm. The year he became the Grammy host, we were forever sort of, we, we were, our relationship was forged in, you know, breaking news because uh, Whitney Houston died the night before oh, the right. first time he hosted. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I picked that song because no one really, I think, knows this, but I'd written a monologue with him for him, which involved him doing a little about Mama Said Knock You Out and mm. about the time he performed that in the Grammys. That monologue never, he rehearsed it. Mm. He went home. He was running a high temperature. He'd been sick that week and said, <clears throat> he called me at like, I think it was like 4.30, 5.30 the night before, after rehearsal, and said, David, I'm going to sleep trying to feel better, so just tell me we're locked and loaded. I said, yeah. LL, locked and loaded. Yeah. Cut to about 40 minutes later, I'm on the, walking around the stage, I believe Coldplay and... I'm not sure who we're rehearsing. It might have been Rihanna and Coldplay. Mm. And we get the word that um, Whitney Houston has died. And Ken Ehrlich goes to me and says, we need a new monologue. Yeah. And I went back to the office and I called LL and I said, LL, I just want you to know we're unlocked and we are mm-hmm. unloaded. Mm-hmm. And went and worked on a new monologue, uh, went over it with Ken and then sent it to him. And he called me and said, uh, I love this. This is powerful. This is beautiful. This feels right. Just one thing. I feel like it needs to have a prayer. Oh. And I went, uh, again, not being Mormon. <laughs> or, or I'm barely anything. Mormon now, too. But yes. Yeah, not Mormon either. <laughs> uh, I said, LL, I don't write a lot of prayers. So mm-hmm. tell me what you're thinking, and then I will Jew it up <laughs> and make it so it will somewhere meet in the middle. Mm-hmm. And that's how that, if you ever watch that mm-hmm. moment, I, I, you know, we, there've been a lot of documentaries on the history of the Grammys. It always pops up and I'm always moved by it because you just see like this moment of the musical community, mm-hmm. like sort of bowing. And, uh, I just, it's, it's, very, it's really moving to me yeah. still. Yeah. I love, I love LL. Couldn't be a better guy to work with. Like, he literally is one of those guys who says things like, teamwork makes a dream work. And, you know, <laughs> we've probably all had someone at work who said things like that, and they don't mean it, and they don't right. act it. He acts, he, he lives it, and he's the best. That's great. I love him, too. And especially the Mama Said Knock You Out album is still a oh, classic. Really great. Who, within the rap or R&B community, because there's a lot, I mean, maybe it's not cool to say this there's a lot of posturing in that world but those people are human beings who in there is a nicer person than we would think they are 
Probably all of them, but I'm curious if someone leaps to mind. It's like, you'd be surprised what a gentleman, what a nice guy this guy is. Or girl. Like, there's people like, Gladys Knight was my first, mm. maybe the first star I ever met, because my, I'm a, I, I worship her. I mm-hmm. go back, like, first singles I bought were Gladys Knight and the Pips. In fact, my dad was a, a sort of marketing sales genius in the beauty cosmetics world, and mm. she, he had a meeting with her when I was like, 11 uh, to help her with a shampoo she was going to put out, I think called Night Shampoo. <laughs> and he, he took me out of school. This is what a great guy wow. my dad was. And he took me into the meeting with her. Like I literally, like an 11-year-old with like a fake briefcase mm-hmm. sitting down to meet Gladys <laughs> Knight. And like uh, she's the nicest person on. She Good. has to hear me tell that story every time uh, <laughs> I work with her. But you know what? I, I will say almost everybody... Yeah. There's not too many great artists I've met who were difficult. One, I think a lot of people are difficult when they feel like you don't listen or get them or understand uh, them. Mm. If they feel understood, if they feel appreciated, and it's interesting. Like I like one thing. Like you'll do these interviews and you'll tell people you love them, which <laughs> I thought, okay, I've never done that. I, I I probably I think I've been married 25 years and I just told my wife I love her, but I think. I show it by, you know, when they can tell how much you know their music. Yeah. They feel that. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot, I think, like, I remember, uh, I'm trying to remember if it was Joe Jackson or maybe. I uh, love But, him. like, someone was once, I'm a huge fan, mm-hmm. and he was a jerk to me in, in the first time I interviewed mm-hmm. him. And I, I said, listen, I'm going to leave because I love your music so much, I don't really want to have this unpleasant experience. <laughs> and he went, I'm sorry. I'm so used to talking to people who don't, know my music that mm. i can be a, an asshole and he was and then cut to a couple years later I'm a, and again i'm a, still a fan he was playing the universal amphitheater which is gone uh-huh. and uh, i was put in the front row by some by the promoter or whatever and he had me removed he like literally said i'm sorry i'm gonna have to stop the show i can't have david wilde a rock critic in the front row. <laughs> he literally had <laughs> really? me removed from the front row that's the wow. that was a new one on me wow Okay, I'm just gonna ask you. I'm just gonna ask you point blank: Who smokes the most weed? Well, anyone from reggae, of course. Yeah, true. But then I will say, okay, my only, my best weed story, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, because I am not uh, like from the time I was the uh, arts editor of the Cornell Daily Sun in college, people have tried to buy weed from me, and I've <laughs> literally never been remotely druggy. Like I just never smoked. I always wanted to spend all my money on music. But my kids would, if, if they were here, and one of them is in the next room, mm-hmm. they would say, I said, what's the only thing Dad ever told you that you should take drugs? <laughs> the only, the, uh, I was once in the, uh, uh, I once had the experience of being at Christmas with Tom Petty at his mm-hmm. house. Mm-hmm. And at one point, uh, I think it was Harris, George Harrison. It was a small party, but there were a few Wilburys. Mm-hmm. And they asked me, uh, Tom said, David, you want to go get high? And I was like, oh, no, thanks. <laughs> and I walked and saw them walking in the room, and I realized if, I had, if they had gotten high enough, I could have been a Wilbury. Yeah. <laughs> so I always say, don't ever do drugs unless three members of a supergroup right. approach you. Right. Oh, that's so funny. It, it's funny you say that because um, for years, as I mentioned when I was younger, and I that was my whole goal was to – write for Rolling Stone and I would feel this inner conflict because 
as a hyper-Mormon then at the time, no drinking, no drugging, no premarital sex, all that kind of stuff. I um, was like, man, what am I going to do if I go, if I'm assigned to interview David Bowie and he wants me to snort coke with him or something like what am I going to do and then I thought that's okay this is going to be my identity I'm going to be the Mormon rock writer and I'm going to be the guy who makes it cool to say no but I'm not going to judge other people because I don't care what they do yeah I literally um never never done drugs except two or three times professionally when I had to Mm. uh there was a band uh, well I think okay Sebastian Bach who as we're speaking today his birthday is Tomorrow, I was going to have to wish him a happy birthday online. I love the guy. I love him but too. He uh, he literally once said to me, like I think they were opening for um, Guns N' Roses, and I was on the tour, and he goes, like we were talking late at night, and he goes, dude, you cannot stay in this room unless you are high. <laughs> so I got, I, I took a few uh, <laughs> tokes, uh, probably didn't even get high, but then it's like if he asked him why later. He goes, well, if you get high you can't say I got high. And I'm like, I never said that. No one cares if I'm high. Right, right. (laughs) That logic, I guess a lot of logic when people are high doesn't work, and that was another case. Yeah. Uh, Okay, one more kind of related question. Who smells like nicotine the most? Like, you know, like if Keith Richards or Johnny Depp, I always imagine if I'm standing around Johnny Depp, I'm just, the fumes are overwhelming me. And I uh, I don't think, I hope that's not insensitive, but I'm curious if, who, when you're around them, it's like, boy, they, it's, the, the nicotine is everywhere. I'm pretty sure I smell worse than anybody in rock, but <laughs> that's a very uh, and I think my answer. wife would say that's true. I, I will say I was with Johnny like six months ago. Mm. And he smelled delightful. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, you know, it's like this weird thing of how you get to know, especially like when I lived in New York, like you got to know people in a certain way. But like living my life in L.A., you get to know people in a whole different way. Like Johnny and I, our kids went to the same school. So we were mm. like school dads. So it was like, you know, you sit together during Christmas concerts. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh, uh, so to me, he's not, you know. Okay. He, he's, he's actually... You know, an amazing guy. Like the first time I ever worked with Johnny was the first TV thing I ever wrote, which was like an ABC rock concert series that was on, I think, a late night series, and he he hosted the one about Tom Petty. In mm-hmm. fact, one of my greatest, I uh, just was someone was asking about Tom, and one of the greatest weirdest days of my life was I was doing a cover story on Tom into the great wide open and we were in arizona at that airplane graveyard which is mm. where they literally just put all the old planes mm-hmm. and they were shooting the video there and we were shooting the video and it's the only picture i have that i could find of me with tom but like we're on like as that we're by the plane that's in the video mm. um but right after that happened this torrential lightning rainstorm came into the desert and we had to hide out in a little trailer and we're in the trailer with the heartbreakers and uh, Julian Temple, I think, who was mm-hmm. the director. And then there's a knock on the door, and it was Johnny Depp, <laughs> trying to get this exactly right, Faye Dunaway. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, it was Lily Taylor, and they were filming a movie with Jerry Lewis called, like, Arizona Waltz, I think Oh, it was. yeah, yeah. Uh, and literally, Jerry was not shooting that day, so he wasn't with us. Otherwise, we would have spent five hours with Jerry Lewis, Faye Dunaway, and Johnny Depp. And I think that might be the reason that years later, like, or maybe not long later, that 
Johnny and uh, Faye were in like the video for yeah. Into the Grave. That's yeah. right. Okay, that makes sense. Wow. Um, okay, I thought more, one more kind of odd question like this. Who have you had the strangest meal with? Well, the most meaningful meal mm. of my life was I went on the round the world with McCartney and with Paul and Linda mm. on the Off the Ground album. Mm-hmm. And we went through South America. We went through Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, we came back through New Jersey, and they were playing whatever the big stadium was there. And uh, Linda, when we were arriving in New Jersey, said, do you have a girlfriend? I was like, yeah. I said, I just met this girl. We went on a couple of dates. In fact, she's in New York on business. And she goes, I want to meet her, bring her to Soundcheck tomorrow, and tell her I want to have lunch with her. Mm-hmm. So it's like my third date with my wife, and it's a hell of a third date to say, mm-hmm. you want to come, and even though she's not a music person, it was still mm-hmm. like, you want to come out to New Jersey, <laughs> see a, you know, a sound check in an empty stadium with Paul McCartney and then have lunch with him mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and Linda. And uh, so that we had lunch, veggie. Like, I, went through, I went through Argentina, the beef capital of the world, <laughs> with, uh, with, the, with, the, with veggies. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, but I had whatever the tofu steak i don't remember the dish that well but i remember afterwards like linda literally pulled me aside Mm. and she goes do you think she sort of put her finger like she was the greatest lady Mm. but this is like she pointed her finger at me she goes do you think i know about marriage Mm. and i went yeah clearly you guys have Mm -hmm. this you Mm -hmm. know they were you know so close those two Mm -hmm. she goes marry that girl now wow and i literally that's i I think there, she was a large part of the reason we got married. Yeah, like right, very quickly. I think we moved out of wow. But years later, there's a photo I tweet all the time because it's so meaningful to me. Uh, after Linda passed, Paul came to do the Grammys mm. for a few. He did it a number of times, but this this is like one of those times. And I'm backstage by the prompter, and my wife walks in with a sort of this amazing, like this sort of surprised look on her face. She goes, I have to show you this picture. And I, she showed me this picture of Paul surrounded by my two sons. And I, she goes, he stopped us in the hallway and said, I need a picture with those two boys. Hmm. And she was like, I don't know how he could remember like me. She, so she just, and Paul, even at the Grammys, someone like Paul McCartney doesn't walk around trying to get photos with people. Mm -hmm. That's what, you know, people are trying to get photos with him. Right. Uh, so, for years after that, I never asked him. I said because either either he thought my sons were the Jonas Brothers who were on the show, or it was the spirit of Linda telling mm-hmm. him to do that. Mm-hmm. And cut to like two years ago, he was playing. We were doing a 60th anniversary Grammy special, and they flew me out to Chicago, and he gave us like 15 minutes at the side of the stage to do an interview about the Goodness. Grammys. Goodness. But we finished. I did like I used like 14 minutes, and then. We're standing on the side of the stage, and I said, I have to ask you a question. And I showed him the picture, and he started tearing up. He goes, don't make me cry before I go on stage. Oh, And so wow. in my mind, I'll always think, like, Linda's spirit is looking out. Yeah. Always. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, they, ha- they seem to have something special, and you want to believe that it's real, and then you hear stories like that, and it sounds like it was. Oh, it, it was so real. She, that's you know, great. she, and she was a great lady. Like, again, like you talk about, like, Yoko and Linda have been, like, in different ways that were vilified over the years mm-hmm. by jealous people or, you know, blamed 
after the breakup. All I can tell you is like Linda was like one of the kindest, generous people okay. I ever met. She she did things like when I was backstage once and not looking towards her or looking sort of sideways, she took a picture and then she sent it to me. She goes, I know you write books, so if you want to use this as your mm. you know, portrait, this is free. Wow, like, that's incredible. Like a, a beautiful, generous soul. Yeah. Okay, I thought of one more person that I want to ask you if you've ever crossed paths with, and that's Steve Winwood. He, he's another, I love him. I've tried to get him on here. He's a total mystery, doesn't do interviews. What's his story? Do you know him at all? Well, I'm a lifelong fan. Mm -hmm. I met him a few times. And I think the reason, I think he is one of the least interesting interviews in history. Oh, really? Uh, like I signed, uh, I didn't do it myself. Like I signed during the like uh, Roll With It era mm -hmm. uh, at Rolling Stone. We put him on the cover. Mm -hmm. My sense is that I've never read an interesting interview with huh. him. Uh, I think he's a, gr I, I go see him all the time. I think, I remember seeing him once, I think Irvine Meadows and saying hello, but I don't think he is hmm. introspective. About, I mean, I think his music, mm -hmm. certainly in the traffic era and those hmm. first records, I love his work, but I've never read an interesting interview wow. with him. I, I go see him, I, I, you know, I went to see him a mm -hmm. year ago, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, no, I, I just, I don't think he, you tell me the time he ever <laughs> said an interesting thing. Uh, I, I did, more interesting was I interviewed uh, for some Rock and Roll Hall of Fame package or something. I interviewed Dave Mason and Ooh. he hates Steve Winwood. You oh, know? really? Uh, and I guess Steve Winwood hated Dave Mason, which would, you know, which is why Dave Mason didn't last long in yeah. traffic. I can't claim any great insight on mm. me, even other than one of the greatest singers I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah, I love him. Um, okay, one last question. Tell us one of your favorite unsung rock books. Rock books? Yeah. Well, I will say I, I go deep on rock books, and uh, I am currently, like the day before essential non-essential stores were closed mm -hmm. i went to the book soup which is like a legendary bookstore on the sunset strip so that i could get an autographed copy of the new book about the association <laughs> the, group, the group that did cherish and, <laughs> and windy by one of the members in fact you and it was a forward by david geffen which is like Ooh. i don't know how you get you know who can you can't pay david geffen yeah. enough to write your forward or your book right but yeah, I, there's too many to mention. I will say, uh, I will be self-promotional and say, mm -hmm. if you have a, any, anyone who has a young, if you play guitar or if you have a kid who loves guitar, I would get my book that I wrote with Brad Paisley uh, called Diary of a Player. Mm -hmm. It's uh, underrated, but not by me. I mm -hmm. overrate it. Good. Okay. Good self-promotion. Now, uh, before we wrap up, you, I don't, it feels weird for me to say this, but you said you had, you might have questions for me. Did you have questions for me? Oh, I didn't prepare oh, okay. any, but I know I, I definitely do. I will, I, I would say what was like, I, you know, I jumped in on a Starbucks guy, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but what was the first person who said yes, that made you think, holy crap, this <laughs> could be a real deal. Yeah. I remember it so well. It was, um, almost exactly five years ago, it was mid-March, and um, I had been, coincidentally, I 
uh, I had been thinking about doing something like this for a long time, but I'm just some nobody. I have I was a journalism uh, major in college, but it didn't last after that. And I thought, what am I going to do? I want to do something. What do I do? But I'm in Denver. I'm in the middle of the country. I don't know anyone. I have no connections. I went to spring training with my best friend who coincidentally died a few weeks ago of brain cancer. Oh, and we, it's okay. We stayed up late one night and he was kind of encouraging me to just start this and how I might do it. And this one night I came back, I couldn't sleep. It was about one o'clock in the morning. And I thought, I'm just going to start, I'm just going to email some people that I would want on the show. And at the time, originally it was to get kind of more obscure people, you know, like one hit wonders or whatever. Like how did those people pay their bills? And um, I emailed nine people that night. And the next morning when I woke up, four of them replied and said yes. And oh yeah, and one of them was Jeff Murphy of the band Shoes, which you came, I, uh, I think you and I had an exchange about this because I read their, a book about them about a year ago. And you're featured in that book because you fought to have their stolen memories or stolen moments. Stolen Wishes. Stolen Wishes, that's it. Album feature, uh, reviewed in Rolling Stone. And that was a big deal to them. And I think I sent oh, you a wow. screen capture of when I read that in the book. So anyway, Jeff uh, said yeah, yes. No, I'm, I, I'm a pure power pop. Yeah. And like, that's my, that's my, uh, that's where I, that's where I start. Like when I mentioned, I wasn't, I don't remember the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I do remember the raspberries on mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. you know, the 70s shows. So that was like the raspberries were my gateway drug into rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. So he said yes. And, um, the lead singer of this band called Toronto that are a Canadian AOR band from the eighties. Yep. The group that I'm trying to remember, they wrote uh, the heart. Didn't they write yes, the heart song? They did. What about um, was it? Which one? Yes. What about love? About love. Yeah. yeah. They the lady in their band named oh what's her name? I'm blanking on it. Shelton. Something. Anyway, she co-wrote it, and then it went huge, and she left the band because she didn't need them anymore, and it kind of bit them a little bit because other people felt like they deserved some credit on that song, as anyone would, of course, once it becomes successful, and you're like, hey, I had a, I had a part in that too. But yes, that's them. You nailed it. And um, this lady, Marge Raymond, who um, was in an early, she was in a band called Flame that was produced by Jimmy Iovine. Oh, okay. That's, here's an example of how your show, <laughs> like, I was listening to that show when I was driving over to Jimmy Iovine's house. No way! And, and uh, I've worked, I worked a lot with Jimmy on a lot of projects and a lot of things, even a few weeks ago. But, like, there was a moment where I was going to say, do I bring up this woman? It's like, we were there for like working on like the uh, big speech for Apple or something. Uh -huh. And and I was like, do I go? And it's like, nah, maybe not. It's like, it was been such a, a detour. Yeah. But I, yeah, I literally, I do remember I was going to bring her up because I remember exactly that episode. That is crazy. She told me that she there was, was great. She was she a was. great interview. Yes. And she, for anyone who doesn't know, the guitarist in this band Flame was Jimmy Crespo, who took over for Joe Perry briefly in Aerosmith. And all the rest of the other than Joe, the, the other three guys, we should say, in Aerosmith, not Joe and Stephen, got with with Marge and wanted to form another band because they were tired of the Joe and Stephen drama and everything and them leaving all the time. They formed a band. They recorded an album. It never came out. I believe it was called Sidekicks or Kicks or I, I have it somewhere. Anyway, it never came out because Steven heard it, liked it and felt threatened and came back and said, you know what? Let's get the band back together. I just think that's fascinating that that kind of thing 
sits out there somewhere, you know. And do no you ever do, do you ever get these people? Sometimes they say, "I'm going to send you that." Do they generally send? Like She's, I'm always fascinated whether yes. they do follow up. It's a, a lot of them do, yeah. Like Chris Thompson, you mentioned who had just been on. He bless oh, his heart, he sent me interview. a sent me a care package of some CDs that he has uh, his like greatest hits stuff and. Yeah, Marge sent me a few songs. Most people have been so sweet. That was the thing is that I found it's actually easier than you would think to find guests to come on your podcast. It is way harder than you think it's going to be to find listeners for your podcast. That's the hard part. You know, it's wild. Oh, no, that's one of the reasons I've, you know, uh, I was on uh, a podcast for a lot often for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, Adam Carolla's met mm -hmm. for many years. Uh, and then uh, uh, the <laughs> the current political moment mm -hmm. made that less comfortable. And I go obviously on Rock Solid, mm -hmm. and I signed twice to do my own with uh, a friend of mine who's famous, more famous than me. So, mm. but I can never quite focus on it because I I always have that fear. Like yeah. I don't know who. I think I'm better off just doing other people's mm -hmm. podcasts. It's uh, it's it's gut-wrenching it keeps you up at night i mean we've done well we've built an audience and stuff but it's never quite what you think it should be and you you don't get the reaction you think you're going to get with some artists and you get bigger reactions on people you wouldn't even think about than you were it's just it's odd it's a real roller coaster emotionally well but, but you you got to know that there's ripples that you don't even know about like mm -hmm. people like me like, you had no idea until i just told you that like mm -hmm. i'm sitting there listening in, in the driveway of jimmy Ives, you know so it's so it's all, you know, I think, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a crazy, it is a crazy thing. It is, yeah. Yeah, the think the guy that I felt so bonded to when he mentioned Parallel Lines being one of his favorite albums, then would, on his own, listen to a podcast that I, this is, it's, I mean, I am, you know, way, I'm below ground compared to you and your success, but the it is, when you sit back and you think, I kind of made this happen. I loved rock and roll. I wanted to do something in it, and I just met, found a way to insert myself a little bit into the world and get to know some of these people, and it worked out. That I mean, we did it in our in our own little way, my little way, your big way. We kind of did it, you know. Oh no! What was it like when the when you uh, what Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? What was the artist that like used a little footage in or interview or got permission to use some in their in the Hall of Fame from your show? Oh, it was the zombies. The zombies again, yeah. one of my absolute favorites of all time. Yeah, like I will tell you that, like, uh, I whatever it feels like from inside, from the outside, like I get this, like people come to me and wanting to be, like, rock critics or you know, asking advice fairly often, and I try not to be a monster and stuff everyone's mm -hmm. dreams up. But I always say, listen, the truth is, I don't think that's the moment. I think the like I, I've always said, make do a podcast, make mm -hmm. a documentary. Mm -hmm. You you know, do it with your iPhone and shoot it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I so I think really you know you are yeah you made your own dream instead of mm -hmm. trying to revive a dream that's dying. Which I right. fear that rock criticism, music criticism, it it, it kind it's of is. It, is. it was yeah. it was a beautiful like what's it what is it in the Muslim mob movie they say. Uh, this used to be a beautiful business about the mob. It's like <laughs> journalism, music journalism was a great, it was great when you were at Rolling Stone and the only feedback, you, someone had to write you a letter to get, you know, mm -hmm. to put you down. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a very, it was a great, great field and also yeah. it paid. 
Yeah. (laughs) But now, I don't know. It's like, I think I feel I was lucky to sort of transition into doing uh, some of the other stuff. You sure are. You sure are. Well, maybe we'll have you back on and we can get even deeper on some of this stuff. There were too many things that I've been chomping at the bit to throw at you the first time I ever talked to you. But next time I want to go deeper on your Grammy experience and your Rolling Stone experience and all that. It would be an honor. I, I do. Thank I you. love the show. I love what you, you do. I, I don't, you know, I've, I'm always fascinated because as an interviewer, you don't, you know, it's very, very easy to be critical of like, mm-hmm. I would never say that, but I love <laughs> you are so peculiarly you all six, eight of you that I, I, I just enjoy it. I enjoy when Thank you me. tell people, I, I actually, one of my favorite things and maybe, uh, uh, your producer, your brilliant, wonderful producer, uh, uh, he could compile the moments when you tell people you love them and the the pauses and the responses. Because there's always like, some people love it, some people are clearly worried about, you know, they're worried that they're in, in stalking situation here. Yeah, yeah. It's been, I would like to hear a greatest hits of the post I love you moment. It's like in a rom-com when the person, yeah. you know, doesn't say it back, you know, it's I, fantastic. That's so funny. Well, I just, I figured this is my one chance, you know? I, oh, no. I, who Listen, knows I'll I, ever speak to these people again. And if they, I just want them to know, you know? I Listen, I want you to love me. I'm just saying <laughs> I, I I find it fascinating. I, oh, good. Again, I literally, I'm going to go tell my wife I love her and she will be, she'll be yeah, surprised. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, for uh, the last song, we're going to close it out as we should with a Fountains of Wayne tune. We started all of this by you talking about Adam, and of course, it's it's inconceivable what has happened and what could con- continue to happen. I am con- curious why you picked this song in particular. Um, it, I will tell you, um, and I'm trying to remember. I'm, I don't. You don't have to tell me. I'm trying to remember what song I picked. But the reason I wanted to, like, it's actually very apropos. I 100%. I worked with Adam. Many times over a number of years, I saw him on Valentine's Day. I saw him at the Emmys. I don't know if he actually, I think I weirded him out. (laughs) I think I was such a fan of literally everything he ever did. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, like, uh, my favorite America album is the America album he produced with James Eha. My favorite Monkees record is the record he produced for the Monkees. There's a, like, double CD of b-sides and outtakes and oddities of flowers of wayne and i literally love every song on that like i loved him and i think working and being like a colleague who would like sit in you know in the chairs i would just like ask him questions about like ivy or like or every like so i think i think i probably freaked out adam a little bit but he was always nice to me and like uh i remember uh like we got to do a comedy song when Ken Jeong opened, hosted the Billboard Awards. Mm-hmm. And like, it literally was like sitting in a, I remember, I think it was like Nicki Minaj, Pat Monahan from Train, <laughs> Ken Jeong, me and Adam, <laughs> or sitting at the Emmys with Neil Patrick Harris, like watching him, you know, just his, he was a musical genius. Yeah, he was. So that was, uh, I, I just, it, it really hit hard, especially because like, I don't how many how long ago was Valentine's Day? It was pretty recently, wasn't it? Not quite two months. The day this yeah, comes out, it'll have been two months. I was in a crowded little club with him, and I don't know when I'll be in a crowded little club with anyone yeah. uh, again. But I guess oh, the song I chose now 
I remember which song I chose. It's a song that, uh, you know, it's been downloaded on my phone, like, for like, you know, when you go into airplane mode on a trip, there's only, I, I have like a relatively limited playlist, but this song is on there. And it's like a song that he, oh, I think I read an interview he's, he did about it since he passed, and I looked it up, and he was like, it's just like a dumb football metaphor. It's not like a, it's not like a deeper meaning kind of thing. And to me, it's like so deep, and now it's, it's the deepest song of all because it's a song, it's called All Kinds of Time. Yeah. And it's like about that expression about like, you know, the quarterback when he goes back and all, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and the sportscaster says they got all kinds of time. Mm-hmm. And literally, like, I think about Adam, I think about in every situation how great he was. I, I think about, like, literally, like, I was lost, in, I lost an Emmy this past year, and I'm at the after party, and I'm walking to get a drink for my wife, and he, like, waves me over and with his, which he just won. <laughs> and I'm, my hand is very empty from knowing Emmy. And uh, I just thought, like, I would have thought of anyone. He had all kinds of time. Yeah, and that's it. I'm so heartbroken that he doesn't. And I'm heartbroken for him and his family, obviously. Yeah. But I am heartbroken for me because, no joke, I, like, I remember, like, sitting and working with him and, he told me, like, oh, yeah, I got an Ivy record and a Fountains of Wayne record coming next year. And I'm like, mm. no! Like, <laughs> I, I, was, I was that kind of fan. So yeah. I, just, uh, I, I, yeah, I just wanted to hear all kinds of time. Yeah, it's the perfect song to close this out. It's a perfect song to pay tribute to him. You, I mean, it, you probably know because you listen. I, I'm, I'm, Neil Finn is, is my favorite songwriter, and it's because I'm fascinated by people like him or Paul McCartney or Adam who seem to have this never-ending well of pop melodies and hooks that seem simple, but they're not, or else everyone else would have done them by now, and they don't. And these guys are just pop craftsmen par excellence. And I put him up there as one of those people who never made a, wrote a bad song. He always wrote high-quality pop music that everyone could agree on, and that's a talent very few people actually have. Oh, no, and it had more depth than he would even admit to. Yes. And which, like Neil Finn, who was my last interview before social distancing. I, oh. I, I can't really say more, but I went over and had a great talk with him. Uh, he's the loveliest guy. I, yeah. I, was, I reviewed the first Crowded House record. I think it's one of the, it may have been my first review ever was the first Crowded House record. And uh, it was great catching up with him. Uh, Good. What did you give it? Three and a half stars? I, I think it was the pre-star error, and I gave oh. it a wild rave. I, okay. okay. I'm always happy when I don't think I ever, like, rated something great badly. I might have overrated a few things, but uh, I, I think I did a, then I did a profile. It's amazing. That's, like, the nice thing about journalism doesn't even allow that much of it now. Mm. But, like, because I sort of transitioned into doing other things you get to know people over the course of 30 years and like it's to get to know your heroes mm-hmm. and spend part of your life knowing them is just you know it's like there's people like stevie wonder who was mm-hmm. like i cannot believe you know how mm-hmm. that's that's why he's that's my picture on my wild about music on twitter mm-hmm. that's the picture i sort of have up there i think i switched it uh <laughs> oh, no it's still there but like i put john prine up because mm-hmm. i'm Currently, just like, uh, yeah. unlike, you know, with Adam, the day before they said, you know, he was improving or something. And yes. then obviously it took a bad turn. So as 
I'm, I've just literally been listening to nothing but Prime, trying yeah. to put out all the musical good vibes that yeah. I, I can. Yeah. Um, coincidentally, the first Chris, uh, Crowded House album is my favorite album of all time. And I forgot that you had written that uh, review. I'm pretty sure that. I'm right. You know, I could I could be wrong, but that is, I, I, no, I'm, I'm no. quite sure I'm right. Yeah, I would think you would be. Well, thank you, David. Thank you for everything you've done. And thank you for talking to me. This is, I am as equally as starstruck talking to you as I would be anyone else because you mean a lot to me. So thank you. Well, I love you. See? All right. There you have it. David Wild. Such a great sport. Thank you again, David. I He's such an important figure to me. And the fact that he talked to me and wanted to come on our show and knew about our show is mind-blowing to me. I will never forget that. So we got to do this again. In fact, the next time I go out to L.A. and do a show with Pat, I'm hoping David can come and we can do something together. Uh, here it is, All Kinds of Time by the Fountains of Wayne. Uh, this was David's last pick, of course, and it's just, it's too sad to be real, and it is, but yet it is real, and it keeps getting more and more real. It's tough out there. Once again, Let's Go Crazy, the Grammy Salute to Prince airs April 21st on CBS. There's all kinds of people that are going to be involved in this. I hope you guys will set your DVRs. Mine is now as well. I'm not going to tease next week because I mentioned this before. I've got a ton in the can right now, and I can't really decide what kind of mood I'm going to be in. And so we'll just see. We'll just see what's coming up. I got a little bit of everything. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do and for producing these fantastic episodes. And you guys know how to find us by now. You can find us on Facebook, and you can like our page, send us a message. You can send us an email, thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter, at thehustlepod. Uh, we have, we just put out a deep dive. Hopefully you all saw it, all you subscribers. A deep dive of a Glenn, Glenn Burtnick came back on and deep dived one of his albums with us. And we have at least one more deep dive coming later in this week if all things go well. I've got a ton of stuff in the can. I just got to get it all out. Poor Yan, he's working overtime these days. Anyway, thanks you all. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah.